0: All right. Welcome, listeners, to episode 60 of Know Your Enemy. I'm Matt Sippin, your podcast co-host, and I'm here with my great friend, Sam Heather Bell. Hey, Sam. Hi, Matt. I should say welcome back in one sense, but we're both back in New York after uh, a few weeks of travel, mm-hmm. which means we're gearing up for the fall. A lot of stuff is happening. The midterms, of course, but a lot's happening on the right. We're excited for lots of uh, episodes we have planned, including some great bonus episodes. But today, we're kicking things off. Kind of uh, a return to full schedule with an amazing guest about her amazing book. Who did we talk to this time, Sam? We had Nikki Hemmer, Nicole Hemmer, on the podcast
1: again, author of a new book, which is called Partisans, The Conservative Revolutionaries Who Remade American Politics in the 1990s. Listeners will remember we had Nikki on before to talk about Rush Limbaugh after he died. She's a really great writer, incredibly, incredibly smart and poised podcaster. And her new book, Partisans, is about what happened to
0: conservatism in the 1990s. Yes. In addition to being on the podcast before and the author of this great new book, uh, Nikki is also now an associate professor of history at and the director of the Rogers Center for the Study of the Presidency at Vanderbilt University. She also co-hosts her own podcast, not surprising when you hear how great she is, called Past, Present and This Day in Esoteric Political History. And you've probably seen her around. She writes for CNN. She's, of course, going to be plugging this book. And uh, we were really happy she was able to stop by Know Your Enemy to uh, talk about it with us. Yeah, and the book is is
1: now out. Yes. But uh, conservatism in the 1990s is something that we've covered on the podcast a few times. But Nikki's thesis here is is specifically that... Something changed between Reaganism and the '90s—a sort of coarsening, more partisanship—and we walk her through that thesis and try to, and sort of kick the tires of it. And I think our listeners will find it really interesting.
0: Yes, a far more comprehensive and, I think, systematic look at the 90s than we've done before. You know, not just talking about what happened, but kind of how we got there and how it fits into some of the things we talk about a lot on the show, the history of conservatism, the narratives we use to describe it, so on and so forth. Nikki's book is a really, I think, unique and pleasingly written uh, contribution to some of those debates. Totally. As we mentioned, we're excited to be back kind of podcasting full-time and one of the things that we mentioned was that you know we'll have some really interesting bonus episodes especially if you're interested in the midterm elections coming out in addition to our other ones you know our book episodes and those kinds of conversations but to listen to those you should subscribe to us on patreon.com slash know your enemy for five dollars a month you have access to all of our bonus episodes and for ten dollars a month you not only get those but a digital subscription to our sponsor Descent magazine who uh, as always we're grateful for the their generosity to us and their support and we're happy to partner with them that's right
1: sign up for those bonus episodes get the premium content folks it's good it's steaming hot it's coming out and as always we want to thank our intrepid producer jesse breneman who did a great job with this episode as he does with every single one and we want to thank will
0: epstein who makes the music for the podcast that's right well shall we get to it let's do it here's our conversation with nikki hemmer about her new book partisans Enjoy. All right, let's get started. Nikki Hemmer, welcome back to Know Your Enemy.
2: Thank you guys so much for having me.
0: We're very excited for this. We're here to talk about a book of yours, Partisans, the conservative revolutionaries who remade American politics in the 1990s. Congrats on this uh, big book coming out.
2: Thank you so much. This has been a project I have lived with for quite some time. So it's really exciting to see it come out into the world.
1: We're so happy you're here. Matt and I were just talking before we started recording about the episode and we were talking about just how much fun it was to read this book. Like It actually just flew by for me.
2: Uh, I love hearing that. And it's one of those things where wanting to write a book that was accessible and interesting and even a little bit fun, even though so many of the (laughs) topics are pretty dark, but it is it is certainly a book that is packed full of characters
1: that's yes. uh, putting it euphemistically but correctly. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: well, I will tell you it's just as a peek behind the curtain, um, I narrated the audiobook for this, and I was in there uh, in the studio doing some pickups, and every single pickup was like the worst thing anyone has ever <laughs> said. And the guy who was the producer was like, What is this book? <laughs> what did they say about the shoes? That's not great. <laughs> That's so
1: funny. Those quotes, you know, can be isolated and follow you around for the rest of your career I think be like listen to what (sighs) Nikki Hemmer said
2: (laughs) (laughs) I did think about that and I will I will spoil one other thing which is that uh, I write about the Dartmouth Review which is the student newspaper of Dartmouth College which had Dinesh D'Souza, Laura Ingram, others and in the early 1980s it published an article that was entirely in jive yeah oh yes
1: like yes like Fake A-A-V-E.
2: Yep. And I have a long quote from that in the book, and I had to read it on the audio book, and I was like, okay, just go for it. At least it doesn't have any genuine racial slurs in it.
0: Did you have to go take a shower after reading that?
2: It was pretty rough.
0: (laughs) But no, listeners, do at this book because it's, as Sam said, it's a pleasure to read. It's beautifully written. Before we recorded, I told Nikki, I know that can be like a, not exactly a compliment, maybe from one academic to another, but coming from Sam and I, it is a compliment. And it, Detracts nothing from the substance to say it was a, a, a beautiful read, even if as you said the subject matter was a a little rough sometimes
2: yeah I really appreciate that
0: we shouldn't delay anymore. We want to talk about this book, which raised so many questions for Sam and I you know when we've talked about the trajectory of the conservative movement, we tend to go back to the origins to the 1950s to anti-New Dealers even a bit earlier. But this book focuses on the 90s. And one of the things I, I just wanted to ask you was, how did you think about that question of the story of the conservative movement and the right. You can go back to the origins and say, things that are happening now were faded from the very beginning. But sometimes that passes over the real and profound changes that happen kind of along the way. They can get papered over. And this is about a big change or changes that happened in the 90s. Can you just talk about maybe how your narrative maybe it's not quite right to say it's different than other narratives, but how it adds to it and maybe complicates them?
2: Yeah, this is a great question, because one thing that historians love to do is fight over periodization. Like, where do (laughs) we start the story? Because where you start the story determines your argument. It's an argument in and of itself. Um, And, you know, my first book was on the Cold War conservative movement, and it sort of starts with the opposition to World War II in the late 1930s and goes up through the late 1970s. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I was thinking as I was finishing that book, I even put it a little too preciously in the first book, (laughs) that that there was something that was happening around Reagan's victory that was both a beginning and an end. In the book, I call it both a victory and a valedictory, a a farewell. And it, it felt like the Cold War conservative movement was coming to an end along with the Cold War at the end of the 1980s. And something emerges out of that. And it has to emerge out of that because the Cold War was the central logic of the conservative movement from the 1950s through the 1980s. Mm -hmm. It would have been impossible for this movement to have stayed the same without that geopolitical reality. And so that was one of the things that I had been kind of turning over in my mind for quite some time. So I was very interested in writing a book on the 1990s. And one of the things that I do say in in the book is that this isn't a prehistory of Trumpism. It's not starting with Trump and working its way back. It's looking forward from Reagan to try to figure out how things were changing after he more or less leaves the scene in the early 1990s.
1: The way that we've framed this on the podcast over and over and over again, the listeners are probably even tired of hearing this theme invoked, but it's the question (laughs) of continuity versus discontinuity. And I feel like the Mm -hmm. whole historiographic and historical debate about Trumpism over the past six, seven years could be defined as, are you on the side of continuity or discontinuity? You know, do you think mm-hmm. that Trump represents the full flourishing of aspects of conservatism that were already there? Or do we think there's some kind of break with Trump? Now, your argument is not in this book that there's some kind of break with Trump, but it is somewhat that there is a break from Reaganism to the 90s.
2: That's exactly right. I'm not a big uh, fan of the rupture thesis when it comes to Donald Trump. I I do think that we can see, as the book uh, suggests, that the conservative movement would be heading in the same direction whether or not Donald Trump ran for Mm. president in 2016. And when I say that there's a break between Reagan and what follows, it's not to say that... Reagan's DNA still isn't part of the conservative movement, but but something really big does change because for Reagan in particular, the Cold War shaped not just his his rhetoric, although it it strongly shaped his rhetoric, it shaped his policies as well, his views of things like free trade and the free movement of peoples. Mm. And with folks like Pat Buchanan, Pat Buchanan in the early 1990s, the Cold War ends and he's kind of like... All right. We we can take a look at some of these assumptions about freedom and democracy. And and maybe we don't emphasize those things as much.
0: Glad that's over.
1: (laughs) Uh (laughs) Well, it's amazing to me, too, that your book also uncovers the fact that even at the time, there were commentators who got a sense that the sunny optimism of Reagan was giving way to something else. Uh, That quote from the beginning of the GOP primary in 1988 from Sidney Blumenthal, where he says, Reagan's boundless optimism has had its day. In the line of history, that day may be a short one.
2: Yeah, it's remarkable. I think that we lose a lot of the uh, complexities around Ronald Reagan and around Reaganism, and especially that moment of transition, in large part because Reagan and his mythology loom so large, whether you feel like Reagan is the start of everything bad in American politics, or whether you think he's the start of everything right. good. He's, he, he's such a towering figure in how we think of not just the 1980s, but the 1990s and beyond, right. that he gets kind of flattened. And so to have those folks, both people like Blumenthal, reflecting on the fact that something is changing, the 1988 campaign was a pretty mean and vicious campaign, but also the conservative critics of Reagan. Marcus Witcher has written a, a pretty good book on this. They didn't like him during his presidency. They didn't like him that much after his presidency. And they really relied on the rise of George H.W. Bush in order to really smack back at Reaganism in a in a totalizing way.
0: You know, I was thinking, reading this, toward your point that that Reagan actually, when he was in office, the rights relationship with him was far more ambiguous than the kind of sainted Reagan of lore that we now are familiar with. And I was thinking that I was at the Heritage Foundation in 2004, that summer, when Reagan died. And when he mm-hmm. died, it was as if the whole place became alive, like jumping into like propaganda mode. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. like this was their moment. And... You know, heritage scholars on radio or television or writing op-eds, you know, claiming Reagan as their own. Heritage was Reagan's favorite think tank, they said again and again. But when you actually go back to that period, many people on the right were far more ambivalent. You know, I think in some ways we got at this in our uh, some of our episodes on Roe versus Wade, that I think for mm-hmm. some on the right they thought Reagan being elected would be the big bang, right? That just changes everything, kind of. Like that, you know, they got this guy elected, he was one of their own, and things were going to change. And the realities of governing his own kind of genial temperament and search for popularity, all those things kind of led to the right becoming disillusioned. And that's a big part of your story. It's right at the start. Just talk to our listeners some about that.
2: So the right since the 1950s had been aiming to win the presidency for exactly the reasons you're talking about. We get one of our own in there, and he is going to be able to remake America, remake American politics. He's finally going to put into place all of the things we ever wanted. There was a group of conservatives that came together in the 1970s, though, who were already skeptical of Reagan at that point in time. They called themselves the new right. And it was people like Howard Phillips and Richard Vigory and uh, Paul Wyrick, speaking of the Heritage Foundation. Uh, And they really leaned into what they called social issues. But I think Vigory got more at the heart of it, which is they wanted the Wallace vote. And they (laughs) believed you got the Wallace vote through appealing to extreme emotions, through fear, through resentment. And so Part of it is that that Reagan was tonally off. It's not that Reagan didn't prick those same emotions, but his kind of overriding way of talking about America and way of talking about the future was upbeat and optimistic. So you have that that tension there just on an emotional level. But, you know, they wanted Reagan to do everything as far to the right as possible. And it's not three weeks into the Reagan administration that Vigory is like, you know, I knew conservatives were going to get the short end of the stick. I just didn't think it was going to be this short. (laughs) They're mad about... Sandra Day O'Connor being chosen for the Supreme Court. They're mad about the people who are being picked to staff the administration. They don't think that Reagan is taking a firm enough position on abortion, on school prayer. And by the time you get to the late second term, when Reagan is engaging in negotiations with the Soviet Union— The new right basically loses it. Um, they call him a useful idiot for Soviet propaganda. <laughs> Reagan! <laughs> Reagan, of all people. like They think that he's completely sold them out on every front. And that was the drumbeat throughout the administration. In fact, it's why Pat Buchanan gets hired as Reagan's communications director, because the Reagan administration felt that they needed a sop to this more hardcore right that they felt they were losing.
1: Right, so your book is really giving in the very beginning, kind of this alternative account of the Reagan years, which I think our listeners will be maybe somewhat familiar with from some of our episodes where we talk about this, but in the kind of like public memory of the 80s, there might be an assumption that like, they got their guy, he's on top, they're doing everything they want, Reaganism is ascendant, and Reaganism is coterminous with the project of movement conservatism. And what you're suggesting is that that was never really entirely the case. It
2: was never really entirely the case during Reagan's presidency. And then you layer over that, again, the importance of the Cold War to sort of every facet of Reagan's politics. And that goes away pretty quickly after he leaves office. And the combination of those two things, the conservative discontent, which really sharpens once George H.W. Bush is president, and then the, the end of the Cold War. And suddenly you have just a very different condition for right-wing politics in the United States, one that hadn't existed for 40 or 50 years.
0: Yeah, in some ways you almost portray it as George H.W. Bush Getting the comeuppance for all the frustration with Reagan. <laughs> yes,
2: <laughs> I feel like you kind of get this sense. Um, you know, Pat Buchanan floats a trial balloon about running for president uh-huh. in the nineteen eighty eight race. He's quickly like, mm, I don't think, I don't think the right's ready for this much of a deviation. Although he he firmly believes, as he says, that the. Uh, biggest vacuum in politics is to the right of Ronald Reagan. So he doesn't run. Pat Robertson runs a pretty funny campaign. But George H.W. Bush wins. And the right was always suspicious of Bush, not just the new right. I mean, they all were. They didn't think he was a true believer. And he wasn't. But he really does follow in Reagan's footsteps in a number of very significant ways, including Raising taxes, and he just takes it on the chin.
1: Takes it on the lips, you might say. Takes that's right. <laughs> takes it on his well-red lips.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes, and uh, man, they hate him, and they get it. It's it's almost like they're able to work out their bloodlust uh, on George H. W. Bush, and he's just a beaten man by the time the 1992 election rolls around.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say, you know, one thing. With the dissatisfaction of Reagan kind of landing on George H.W. Bush, I think it was what in 1986, just to give an example, that Grover Norquist inaugurated his no taxes pledge. Right. Mm -hmm. So this is after about six years of Reagan, who had, as you said, despite the, the initial big tax cuts because of the deficits they caused you know, he would raise taxes quite substantially, you know, after that, more than once. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so you have Grover Norquist, no tax increase pledge. And so that was kind of the terrain George H.W. Bush had to operate on then, right? Does he sign the pledge and box himself in, or does he not and piss off, you know, the hardcore, right, who was really upset about taxes?
2: And he was under such pressure to... Prove his bona mm-hmm. fides to this group that had, as you're suggesting, grown, I think, a little more radical under Reagan because. Reagan had disappointed them, that they were going to have to be more active, that they were going to have to demand more, that they were going to have to push harder in order to make sure they got the things that they want. And so Bush also is is bearing the brunt of that.
0: There's a lot we could get to here, but I want to dwell on 1992 just a little bit. We've done an episode on 1992 with our, our, our friend John Gans.
2: Oh, he's great on this.
0: One thing you talked about more than I think John did in this previous episode is the role of Ross Perot. Perot is such a fascinating, somewhat freakish character. Just some of those pages were some of my favorite in the book.
2: He's so interesting. And it is a crime that there aren't more books on Ross Perot. Because, you know, he's, I I didn't know his background as thoroughly as I do now. And he had been kind of this rogue agent for years because he was a a billionaire and he could splash his money around and and translate it into political access and influence. So he was talking about rescuing POWs from Vietnam, these daredevil schemes to get hostages out of Iran. Um, And he had become this almost this larger than life figure, which is so funny given how diminutive he was. Um, (laughs) But he had like made for television movies made about him and he was a, a thoroughly mediated figure by the time he appears on Larry King Live, where he's just an absolute hit for reasons that I have to say still mystify me a little bit. Uh-huh. Like people loved this guy. Every time he was on Larry King, he was setting new records for <laughs> participation and phone calls and, and viewers. And he wasn't in any way an expected Political figure, right? He has a like very reedy voice. He has very large ears. Um, he, he's not he's not your standard charismatic candidate, but I think that's part of the appeal that there was something that had been shaken loose by the end of the Cold War, and it's it's a confluence of so many things. It's a different media environment. It's the end of the Cold War. It's the economic contractions and fluctuations that come as the Cold War ends and you're in the middle of this shift from a manufacturing economy to a service right. economy. Right. Like The world is just starting to look so different. And here comes this Alfred E. Newman-looking guy who <laughs> is shaking things up in this really entertaining way, and he is drawing... Just as many Republicans as Democrats, and as you both know, he's the uh, one of the winningest third-party candidates of the 20th century, and it's remarkable, especially given he's a wild card. <laughs> yes. He's a loose cannon. He's somebody who like drops out in the middle of the race, and then he comes back in. In October.
0: Yeah. Drops out in July, gets back in in October, and still gets 19%.
2: It's wild. And I think that it suggests that there was something unmoored about mm. the American electorate, and the thing that I didn't know was how much of an influence that would have on both the Republican and Democratic parties, right. right? They're trying to figure out how to harness that Perot enthusiasm and that Perot vote to their parties so the other party doesn't benefit.
1: How would you define the sort of lessons that each side learned? Because that was something I was interested in. That Yes, I mean, there are ways in which the end of the Cold War redounds to the benefit of The far right within the Republican Party no longer having to (laughs) provide all this lip service to democracy and freedom and (laughs) social democracy, even um, Mm -hmm. welfare, blah blah blah. It's like no no no, we're done with all that. Or and as you as as you mentioned earlier, sort of like the city on the hill, the kind of everyone come here. You know, immigration politics changes a lot. But what were the different Mm -hmm. lessons that you felt? each side learned from the Perot or tried to incorporate it into their own message?
2: So the the kind of confusing thing about it, given how pugilistic the politics of the 1990s were, is that Perot taught, especially the Republicans, to move away from those very emotional and divisive social issues and to talk about things like reform and term Mm. limits, in part because Ross Perot was... Pro abortion access. Right. right. Um, but he was for like balanced budgets and he was opposed to NAFTA. And he just had a very different set of politics. And for Republicans, they looked at that and they said, okay, what Americans are responding to is this anti establishment fervor that Perot was tapping into. And they don't want it to be Democrats against Republicans. They just want a party to come forward and say, hey, we're going to reform things in a populist direction. Your voice is going to be heard. We're going to break up the old boys clubs. Right, And that's why ultimately you get the contract with America, which Mm. is a Ross Perot document. It is written to get the Perot vote. And it doesn't mention Republicans. It doesn't mention Democrats. It doesn't mention Bill Clinton. Like it is stripped of any kind of partisan identifier. And it is really narrowed down to what the Republicans claim are 60 percent issues. So issues that don't divide the country, but that at least 60 percent of the country agree with. We can talk about the accuracy (laughs) of that claim, but that's how it was presented. And that's what they they learn from Perot.
1: Good old Frank Luntz yeah. mucking it up with the push-pulling
2: <laughs> Any number of push-pulls, um, although he gets sanctioned by the polling board because he refuses to release his information. So we don't really know what underlying polls his data was based on, if it even existed. Um, but Frank Luntz, you know, was a Perot pollster. Yes, he was a Buchanan right. pollster who becomes a Perot pollster who then becomes part of the the Republican machine.
0: Right, yes. Right. Well, Nikki, you mentioned that you know, one lesson from... Perot was the kind of emphasis on reform and the way that made that its way into the 1994 GOP contract with America. And I think this is worth really kind of getting into some, because in addition to the end of the Cold War, there's a couple other things you kind of lay out pretty early in the narrative. One is that as we look at what would happen on the right in the 90s, The shift from the focus on the presidency, what Reagan was doing, winning the presidency, to the GOP now kind of being the vehicle for conservatism, being a congressional party, running Congress. How important was that kind of shift to Congress? Because it seems like it just let Newt Gingrich and his allies in the Republican Party just make quite a bit of mischief. (laughs) Uh, And we see that, we, (laughs) we, we see that one way to put it. It really, you know, comes to fruition maybe later in the 90s when they're investigating Bill Clinton. But how would you characterize that shift toward Congress and towards leaders like Newt Gingrich? How did the right use that opportunity? Or what opportunities did it give them to pursue their ends?
2: Oh, I think it has a a profound effect on Republican and conservative politics in the 1990s and beyond. As I mentioned earlier, since the days of Dwight Eisenhower, the conservative movement was obsessed with winning the presidency. And they win the presidency, and they don't get everything that they want. And the, the... center of power really does shift to Congress and Newt Gingrich and this Republican revolution in 1994. And that's really important because it it gives birth to a couple of things. One is a new type of obstructionist politics and obstructionist brinksmanship that is unfolding because of the tensions between Congress and the president, including what was at the time the longest government shutdown in U.S. history. That kind of innovation um, and then the, the impeachment of Bill Clinton is happening in the 1990s as power settles into Congress. But I think even more important, because that power is particularly concentrated in the House... Even though we talk about politics becoming nationalized during the 1990s, the representatives are people who are chosen from these tiny little districts. Mm -hmm. And it really does favor at times a more extreme politics Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and a more extremist set of representatives because they don't have to win national elections. They just have to win their own district. And this means that even somebody like Newt Gingrich, you know, when he's made speaker... In 1995, he comes in with this new class of freshmen. And you've seen these charts. They're far more conservative than any other Congress uh, had ever been. But there's a group that calls themselves the true believers who are right. challenging Gingrich at <laughs> right every <away>. turn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> any sort of compromise he makes, they're like, well, look at this guy. He's <laughs> he's selling us out. Um, and it's constantly pushing. It's not only pushing the policies further to the right, but it's pushing the politics further to the right. And you see that again, with the government shutdown, the true believers come out. And they're like, I can't believe you're ending this. And Gingrich is like, we lost, (laughs) we have to reopen the government. And they can't believe it. And so they're constantly challenging his speakership and trying to overthrow him. So he has to balance that with everything else that he's doing.
1: Maybe this is the time to get into this, because I find it i found it to be one of the most fascinating chapters in your book. It flows from the fact of these congresspeople from smaller districts who can have more radical and kind of specific to their location types of politics that then become kind of weirdly mediated and nationalized. But your chapter on Helen Chenoweth, I thought, was fascinating. Oh um, my gosh, I love you that know, chapter. <laughs> yes, it's, it's so good. She's this congresswoman from Idaho, though, of course, as you point out, she insisted on being called congressmen at all time, because that's the only way for her to derive the full respect that our sort of patriarchal leaders get, which I I don't want to waylay on that. But I think that's actually a very interesting kind of synecdoche for her variety of Mm -hmm. anti-feminist feminist politics that was really different from the sort of new right style conservative womanhood that was innovated by someone like Phyllis Schlafly, mm-hmm. who always kind of denied the way in which she herself was a working woman. She was had to be a figure of domesticity, even though, of course, she wasn't entirely. She was working all the fucking time. But Chenowith, she's divorced. Um, she has kids. She's a working mother, is kind of the model for this, this suite of, of new conservative women, people like Laurel Ingraham, Ann Coulter and her Polster, Kellyanne Fitzpatrick, who would later be Kellyanne Conway, who, was, who worked for Chenoweth. And it was this model of conservative womanhood distinct from what we've talked about on the podcast before when we did our episode on uh, Mothers of Conservatism.
0: Michelle Nickerson's book.
2: Excellent book.
1: It's such a great book. It feels much more the model for people today like Lauren Boebert and Mm -hmm. Marjorie Taylor Greene, it's very pugnacious. It's very controversial, inviting controversy, flirting with the most radical far-right elements in their districts and amongst their support base. Helen Chanowith is sort of the the figure you use to get into that.
2: Absolutely. This really is the next wave of anti-feminist women who have sort of secured all of the gains of the second wave feminist movement, and are also anti-feminist. So they are professional women, they are not deriving their political identity from motherhood, or from being housewives, housewife activism, as you know, from from Professor Nickerson is particularly powerful in the 1960s and 1970s. But these women are are lawyers, and they're members of Congress are lobbyists, they're professionals, and they are unapologetic about it. And yet at the same time, they are, are firmly anti feminists. And Chenoweth is such an interesting example of this precisely for that that line, right, call me congressman, what she's doing is she's playing around with language. In the same way that you see feminists in the 70s and 80s and 90s challenging the use of patriarchal language, challenging the use of default masculine language. Right. But instead of calling herself a congresswoman, she calls herself a congressman. That's and so in part, it's like she's she's trolling. Yeah. And it's something that she does in a number of different ways. She does it in particular against the environmental movement because she is from Idaho. And one of the cores of her politics is opposition to environmentalism. So she holds like endangered salmon bakes. um, (laughs) She says all sorts of ridiculous things, but it gets her headlines and it gets her attention. And you're going to see that exact same model in people like Laura Ingram, and Ann Coulter, women who are associated with a group called um, the Independent Women's Forum, which grows out of Women for Judge Thomas, which was a (laughs) pro-Clarence Thomas group in Hmm. 1991. Anyways, Chenoweth is particularly interesting, in part because she has not a media base, but a a political base, right? right? She's She's a member of Congress. And in part because her district in Idaho contains Ruby Ridge. Yes. Right. And by 1994, when she's elected to Congress, Ruby Ridge has taken on this kind of mythic status within um, militia groups and white power groups. And that is part of her base. Totally. And part of what she does as a member of Congress is she mainlines those conspiracies and she protects militias and her office becomes kind of an an on-ramp. For some of these more extremist groups into mainstream politics.
0: Well, since Chenoweth withdraws her eyes toward Idaho, I wanted to talk about some of the issues in play as Republicans took over Congress. You mentioned Ruby Ridge. Could you just explain to our listeners what that is for those who don't know?
2: Sure. So this was an instance where U.S. Marshals get involved in a shootout with a family that's connected with the militia movement and the white power movement. And in the course of that shootout, a U.S. Marshal is killed. Two members of the family are killed. And the, the man that they were after was somebody who uh, was being arrested on federal gun charges, but he had been caught up in this entrapment scheme by the FBI Mm -hmm. who was trying to flip him into an informant on some of these groups. Um, And so it's very messy. It is absolutely a case, along with Waco, of the federal government... Just fucking making some really (laughs) bad decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And it feeds into this anti-government mood or this anti-government politics and this anti-government violence. Right. Most Uh importantly, um, that's centered in the West. Um, But it gives rise to, um, through Chenoweth, The mainstreaming of all kinds of things. So she is asking member, you know, when she when there are hearings and confirmation hearings, she's asking about black helicopters, which is a anti UN conspiracy theory. She is talking about what's essentially a sovereign citizen or a um, sheriff supremacist movement, this idea that, you know, the sheriff is the most powerful law enforcement figure in the country and federal agents are basically only granted Mm -hmm. the power given to them by localities. This is very popular in like the Posse Comitatus movement, and some other very far right violent groups. And so she's giving them a way into formal politics.
0: Yeah. I mean, the sheriff issue you mentioned, that that's called constitutional sheriffs. And -hmm. this is something we're actually seeing again now, especially in the wake of the pandemic shutdowns. It Mm -hmm. it kind of reemerged. But the idea is that actually it's the county, not the federal government, or the state government, but the county government that's actually like the highest, right? Or should be supreme. And therefore, the county sheriffs are the highest law enforcement officers in the country. Right.
2: Which if you've met county sheriffs, not great. Not
0: great. Right, (laughs) right. But I, I kind of feel like this kind of melange of issues, Waco, Ruby Ridge, we didn't really talk about NAFTA yet. But the kind of sequence of George H.W. Bush talking about a new world order, something like NAFTA, Mm. which was perceived as like a threat to American sovereignty. All those issues are in play. Bill Clinton comes in. NAFTA's ratified. Waco's in 1993. Ruby Ridge is when? It is
2: in 1992.
0: 92, right. So all this is kind of happening around the same time. And I feel like it's very hard to understand the conspiratorial edge without understanding the way those events and new policies were understood and interpreted by the right and kind of the hay that was made from them.
2: Absolutely. You can understand the anxieties around national sovereignty and how easy they are to turn into a set of conspiracy theories, or to build a conspiratorial worldview around, right, that we are um, giving our sovereignty away to the UN, that we're dissolving our borders between Mexico and Canada, that the United States is no longer going to exist as a cohesive, coherent nation, because we're going to be part of a one world government. And of course, those conspiracies are so old in many ways, (laughs) (laughs) and flow very easily into conspiracies about the international Jew. And it it goes in a lot of really dark places really quickly. And in the 1990s, they had just an incredible amount of power. And you have to layer in religion as well. Pat Robertson, who is the founder of the Christian Coalition, is one of the big advocates yeah. of this idea of the new world order and when he talks about it he's like and the trilateralists and the illuminati and the rockefeller like the it right. is everyone <laughs> and then if you want to add one other component that is quasi-religious you're getting near the end of the millennium and oh, right. all uh-huh. of those things are just a breeding ground for not just conspiracies but violent conspiracies.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, I I felt that that chapter on Chenoweth was so helpful for bringing to fore the conspiracist mood of the moment. I, I think we, we, we look back and and as I mentioned, I think of her as sort of a forerunner to somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene. And we think it's so crazy that somebody who believed in QAnon was elected to Congress. But it's like, well, Helen Chenoweth believed in the idea of like a one world government and the UN mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and was playing with this black helicopter stuff. There was VHS tapes of her speeches that were sold in a militia catalog mm-hmm. next to ads for bomb making manuals and, and other conspiracy videos. I And she also had that trollish instinct. You mentioned the salmon bakes. I actually thought this was a very funny t-shirt that she would wear the Earth first on one side and on the back it says, we'll log the other planets later.
2: (laughs) I mean, it is funny. And I think that the fact that it is funny is part of a way of understanding the politics of that moment, that blending of that kind of trollish humor and formal politics I, it was the backbone of so much of the politics of the era. And she she nailed it.
1: You know, and to point the way in which these sometimes jokey, trollish things have real serious consequences or, or sort of serious implications, I thought it was really notable when you mentioned that at one of those endangered salmon <laughs> cookouts, she said, it's the Anglo-Saxon male that's endangered today. Mm-hmm. And I think that maybe kind of gets us to something that's really well documented in your book, which is the racial politics of this era and the idea of the angry white man and the idea that the way that conservatives are talking about race is changing from the Reagan era.
2: And what I think it's important to underscore at the beginning is it's not that Reagan's politics weren't racist, but they were often racist in a different way, in two kind of different ways. One, Reagan was much more reliant on dog-whistling, on not saying things that could be interpreted as overtly racist appeals. Sometimes they weren't very high-pitched whistle, but he relied on that. And his racism was also the, a kind that was like, you know, Black people are not quite up to speed with white people, but they can be. Let's get the mm-hmm. government out of the way, and they can be brought up to the level of white people. Right. Again, not something he would say explicitly, but that's uh, embedded in his his policy and in the way he talks about it. What you begin to see in the mid-1990s is a reappearance of and a foregrounding of a kind of pessimistic racist politics in things like, well like Charles Murray and Richard Herrnstein's The Bell Curve, um, which suggests that there is a racial and genetic component to IQ, that black people just have lower IQs than white people and that you're not going to change that. And Dinesh D'Souza, whose book The End of Racism, is also like, look... Black culture is inferior, and black people are going to need to solve that before they can be equal to white people. And then, of course, the racial theories around immigration, which I think are very handily captured in Peter Brimlow's Alien Nation, which comes out in 1995, where he's basically like, ugh, all these brown people, what are they doing here? And he, of course, would go on to found Fider, a white nationalist Mm anti-immigrant website and those in in 94 and 95 those books are coming out and they really are not only are they foregrounding a kind of hard racist message they're being read by tons of people like these are Mm. these are authors who understand how to sell outrage and controversy as a way of getting their racial politics into the core of the conversation.
1: Yeah, in terms of the sort of savvy of the way people like Brimlow, D'Souza, and Murray were tapping into these previously unstated racial animosities, um, I thought that this quote from Murray that you have, which is actually from a proposal for his first book, Losing Ground, which came out in the 80s, but which seems like kind of like (laughs) like the motivating impulse behind all of these books is he writes... Quote, a huge number of well meaning whites fear that they are closet racists. And this book tells them that they are not. It's going to make them feel better about things <laughs> they already think but do not know how to say. And it's just like if you're if you're looking for like just a more explicit statement of like we're gonna pretty up basically straightforward hierarchical racism fundamental sort of DNA encoded deficiencies between the races with a bunch of charts and make it sound intellectual and smart. And we're going to make white people who are feeling angry for various reasons and scared for various reasons of their of their diminishing hegemonic prowess in politics, in the economy, we're going to make them feel better. And we're going to say that those feelings that they have, you know, they're real. And we, the sort of intellectual elite in this way, See them, and we have we have the the data to back it up.
2: It's amazing how plainly and baldly that's put, and you can also see it in the books themselves, which I think all three of them have some sort of passage that's like, now people are going to call me a racist for saying that, but that's just what they say to people to shut them up and silence them. So I wear it as a badge of honor, like that thing that right. you hear all the time now,
1: no, all is the time. present
2: in in all of those books, and especially in D'Souza. D'Souza's like, and guess what? I'm a brown immigrant. They're never going to be able to lay a glove on me. Like it's that sort of straightforward in terms of the kind of rhetorical cover that they're grabbing for as they make really explicitly racist arguments. Yes. And I I should say explicitly racist arguments with clear policy Goals. Like these are books that are meant to argue against great society programs, programs for the poor, programs that are aimed at people who have historically been discriminated against. So it, it has a clear political edge as well.
0: I mean, Nikki, the line in your book that I just stuck in my head is the dog whistle had been replaced with the bullhorn. Mm. I, and I think that captures the dynamic you're describing well. But, you know, the mention of a bullhorn there, we want to talk about. Shifts in the media too, which is a big part of your story and a part of your expertise. As you mentioned, your first book was specifically on conservative media, right wing media, and a lot of these figures we've talked about, you know, especially people like Laura Ingram or Ann Coulter. They were on TV a lot, and that was a big shift, right? The shift from network television to cable news. The shift from an older style of radio, maybe, to the rise of talk radio in Rush Limbaugh, a figure who looms in your book, who we won't talk about that much since we did a whole episode on him previously with you. (laughs) But, you know, his role in Bush's re-election, George H.W. Bush's re-election campaign in 1992, the fact that he had endorsed Buchanan earlier in that race, the, the White House's courting of Rush Limbaugh. Newt Gingrich inviting
1: the basically the conservative media into the yeah. capital when they were yes. coming into office.
0: In nineteen ninety two. This was something I didn't know. Ronald Reagan sent Rush a letter, which he read on air, in which he named Rush as the number one voice for conservatism in our country. Reagan allowed that this was because he was retired from, you know, active politics. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Bill Buckley kind of becoming friends with Limbaugh. Limbaugh had moved to New York City at some point. So, you know, these fancy parties that Bill and Pat would throw at their masonette. Rush was at some of them. Rush was put on the cover of National Review in 1993 under the headline, Leader of the Opposition. (laughs) <laughs> Could you just talk about the the media part of this story, however you want to talk about it, and and you know some of these characters you you highlight.
2: So there are two things that I would emphasize, and one is the. Th- thinning walls between entertainment and politics. And you've listed a lot of that, right? Mm-hmm. The, the relationship between Limbaugh and the Bush administration, that letter between Reagan and Limbaugh, but also somebody like Pat Buchanan, sure. who had worked in administrations behind the scenes, but was really known when he ran in 92, because he was a host on Crossfire on CNN, mm-hmm. and he was also a regular on the McLaughlin Group on PBS. He was a media figure mm-hmm. who was running for president without ever having run for office before. And so I think that he's a, a kind of new type that you'll see increasingly on the conservative side. But I also want readers to understand the important role that non-conservative media play in creating this kind of conservative punditry and in elevating conservative ideas in the 1990s. Like I just said, Pat Buchanan was on CNN and PBS, when Laura Ingram and Ann Coulter move into uh, television, they're on MSNBC, not Fox <laughs> News. Uh-huh. Right. That's where Tucker Carlson gets his start. Glenn Beck starts on CNN. It is important to understand the role of like New York Times Magazine putting Laura Ingram on the cover in 1995 or um, the New Republic running its big issue on the bell curve mm-hmm. that that. The idea that controversy sells and that right-wing outrageousness is something that should be at the center of the conversation and should be well-represented, not just in news, but also in entertainment. And I write a lot about Bill Maher's Politically Incorrect.
0: Yes. (laughs) I'm hoping hoping you're going to get there.
2: (laughs) Yes. Which I just think is so important on Comedy Central, which is a relatively new um, cable station in the 1990s. Politically Incorrect very quickly becomes the temple of that station with Bill Maher. And Bill Maher, who himself says you know he identifies as a libertarian I think he said he voted for Bob Dole in 1996 so this is not somebody who is a a leftist he insists that as often as possible one of the seats is saved of the four people on his panel of his comedy show which mixes together actors and people in public life and comedians that there be as often as possible a conservative on that show and that conservative is very often. Laura Ingram, Ann Coulter, Kellyanne Fitzpatrick, Dinesh D'Souza. These are folks who learn how to be outrageous and entertaining on this show called Politically Incorrect, which in 1996, maybe early 97, moves from Comedy Central to ABC. So it gets a much bigger audience when it becomes a network show and it mainstreams Mm -hmm. um, a particular type of communication For folks Mm. who will go on to become the backbone of conservative media.
1: that's such a good point that it's not just that conservative outlets become more comfortable with, you know, amplifying the most radical ideas that their audience might be interested in or, or their constituents might have, but that mainstream media, that the whole media just sort of thinks, you know, what's fun is seeing crazy people yell at each other about Mm. politics. (laughs) (laughs) That this pugnaciousness that you point to as sort of core to uh, the change in conservatism of the 90s, that I think you describe it as tapping into a coarseness in American politics, that that's not just conservatives changing on their own. It's, just, it's that the whole media ecosystem is, seems to be incentivized or perceives itself as incentivized, as bringing that coarseness to the fore, because it's entertaining.
2: And it rewards a certain type of conservative commentary, because it's not just, there's not just one type of conservative politics, or conservative punditry, or conservative entertainment in the 1990s. But there is a real preference for this kind of outrage generating mm-hmm. stuff in Mm. the 1990s and in that media environment. And that's why you get so much of Rush Limbaugh and these other pundits. But that's also why you get somebody like Newt Gingrich fitting in so seamlessly, because he too is trying to be outrageous and mean and like leaning into the the coarseness of politics. And he's doing media as well, of course, because he has a... uh, couple of shows on a network called the National Empowerment Television. But that, again, that blending of media and politics is happening seemingly across the board.
0: Nikki, one of the small details, not the most important one, but one that did make my jaw drop, was the detail that Rush Limbaugh had been in talks with the producer of the the sitcom or television show Designing Women to be a guest yes. star on the season opener. And I'm just old enough to have watched Designing Women before, and...
2: I mean, could you imagine Julia Sugarbaker? (laughs) I know, I know. It
0: just, I couldn't believe it.
2: But isn't that interesting, the idea that Rush Limbaugh... Yes. I don't think this would happen... Maybe it would. I don't know. But that he would just be, uh, first of all, that he's famous enough that he could be a recognizable guest star on a show like that. (laughs) But that it it makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's fine. Rush Limbaugh is now going to be part of this entertainment package is really interesting.
0: You know, I wanted to push you on one thing with regard to the role of media, or just get your thoughts on it, because I think it's it connects to debates that hover a lot around how we understand conservatism in the right, which is, if I can put it this way, when it comes to these changes in media and what they wrought, was it a supply side issue or a demand side issue? Like,
1: mm. uh,
0: you know, these figures on the right who had these media perches, did they cause the conservative base or Republican politicians and others to to become more extreme because they would highlight issues like immigration or gun control or talk about them in the most incendiary ways or were they responding to demand from the base on the right that wanted those issues discussed? Maybe it was a little bit of both. But I was thinking about that, too, in the context of something like Prop 187 in California, where, Mm -hmm. you know, some of the polling showed it was not a major concern of voters. Right. And then does the the kind of surfacing that issue and, and making it one, does that change, you know, how the the rights thinking about it? Does it change public opinion more broadly? Those kinds of questions about, is the dog wagging its tail or is the tail wagging the dog? How do you think about that issue when you're writing about media and its influence?
2: One of the things that I try to keep foremost in my mind as I'm writing about it is, first how complex that interplay is. You essentially have three different levels. You have the base or the audience, you have the media creators, and then you have the politicians. Mm-hmm. And ideas and pushback are flowing up and down that chain over and over and over Fair. again. If if Rush Limbaugh says something that his audience is strongly opposed to, he's going to hear from them. Mm. And he is going to moderate often to fit where his audience is. But he's also in conversation with people like Newt Gingrich. Mm -hmm. And so he has to decide, like, how much am I going to push Newt? How much is Newt going to respond if if I push him? So there is this complex interplay. And I also think one of the things that I always try to emphasize is that audiences aren't sponges. They're part of an iterative process, especially with these shows that are interactive, like talk radio. They're not just there soaking in messages like a sponge they're taking bits and pieces that resonate with them in the media that they're consuming. And that media can have real power. I think the Prop 187 example is really important. In order for immigration to become sort of the hot button issue that it becomes in 1994 with Prop 187, a framing has to happen and be accepted. And that framing didn't really happen in 91 by any major figures. Pat Buchanan tries it out in 92. It doesn't really resonate. And then both a combination of changing conditions and changing messaging really helps it to catch on in 94. So it's complicated. And I think keeping that complexity at the fore is really important. I also think that it's worth emphasizing that these audiences feel newly empowered, and they are empowered in a lot of ways by new technologies and not just their mm. ability to call into to a radio show. One of the stories that I love from this book is there's a group of activists who want to hold like a, a convention of the states in order to emphasize their commitment to the Tenth Amendment and, and ensuring that the power flows back to the states and everybody is a federalist and all this. And they really think that they're tapping into some of the anger and energy of the base, but suddenly you have this group of people who are the the core base of uh, of the conservative movement who see this organization of this conference as a conspiracy being organized (laughs) to take their power away. And so they start using fax trees. Oh my God, fax (laughs) trees. This is amazing that they're using like faxes to generate this conspiracy theory and like spread it far and wide.
1: It's a proto-chain email.
2: It, It is. And the fact that people are using that innovation that's often credited to the internet as soon as they have the technological means to do so suggests that there is this kind of energy and conspiracism that doesn't just need people with more power to voice it, but also needs an outlet to get out there, right? To to circulate. And right. that's what you see in, in those fax trees and then eventually in the internet as it emerges. And so this is this is not a very clear answer to your question, but it's in part because it is such a complicated hmm. stew. And I, you know, there are all sorts of media studies theories and ways of measuring ratings and different things like that. And I've never found any of them to give a really satisfactory answer to this question, which is why I think it's always good to go as granular as possible to try to like pull apart the uh, role that different characters play.
1: I think that that element of the interactivity of the media ecosystem at the time is one that doesn't explain at all, like you're saying, these are all these factors are all in the mix, but that can't that really shouldn't be lost when we talk about conservative media and the interaction with the base. Because, I mean, today, now, you know, I think people still, even though it's so obvious that there's this interactivity with social media and so on, people still have the fantasy that if Fox said something different, you know, the base would come back on, on side yeah. to normalcy or whatever.
2: It's not going to happen.
1: <laughs> Never going to. That's not, It wouldn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. And things like QAnon are conspiracies that Function on the terrain of that interactivity. You ha- it gives people a sense of control and a sense of participation, which, if you don't have that, if it's just this emanating down from on high, propaganda. I don't think it has the same impact.
2: And Sam, I think we have really good evidence of the fact that that's not the case, because there have been many times when something like Fox News has been a, a lagging indicator, not not right. a leader on issues. Most recently, of course, with the 2020 election. Right. And when <laughs> yeah. when they call yeah. the election for Donald Trump, suddenly their ratings plunge because people go away. So I think that that's important. But I think that you're also tapping on into something that's another piece of this complicated puzzle, which is the belief that these media have power, Mm. that somebody like Rush Limbaugh commands the base, gives him a real power in his relationship with politicians. Uh, Um, It eventually gives Fox News a real power in its relationship with the Republican Party, because even if you don't have good evidence that that's the (laughs) case, and we actually have good evidence that Rush Limbaugh doesn't control them, right? He is promoting Pat Buchanan, Pat Buchanan doesn't win, he then backs Bush, and Bush doesn't win. Like, he doesn't have a great track record until 1994, and then you can't necessarily say that Rush Limbaugh made that happen, but he's perceived as having. Having a tremendous amount of power. He's treated as though he does. And that really does change the dynamics and it really does empower him. It's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy.
1: Well, let me ask you one more thing. This is maybe sort of on the demand side of the ledger. Mm-hmm. One of the things I was thinking about while I was reading your book was situating the 90s as a moment of backlash, but of a particular kind of backlash, which is that we we often think of sort of backlash politics as happening right after a policy is passed, you know, mm-hmm. the 70s and the 80s, there's a reaction against the civil rights movement and feminism and gay rights in the form of the new right, right? It's the passage of these policies and then people back, there's a backlash against it. But there's another form of backlash, which we might call like staggered backlash, which is when the effects of policy changes start to come into effect and mm-hmm. might be actually felt in people's lives in a more kind of intimate way. And so if we think that the changes, the the desegregation, that the sort of feminist movement and the sort of inclusion of women in both politics and in the workplace, and and of course the Immigration Act of 1965, Mm -hmm. that all of these things, you know, they have an immediate impact on politics, but also the changes to things like labor markets and the way that TV looks and the way that people's workplaces have more brown faces than they used to, and people's neighborhoods are different. And then even like something like Reagan's economic policies and the onset of neoliberalism in the late 70s, these things don't change everything right away. But maybe by the 1990s, all of these things, to the extent that they actually do cause structural changes, the 90s is maybe where the rubber hits the road in terms of them actually manifesting in people's lives. If there's a sort of angry white man, they might be able to look around and, and sort of see some of the changes that these policies started to put in motion coming into the fore in the 1990s. Does that seem like something that's that might be there?
2: Oh, absolutely. And I think that you have lots of evidence. and It doesn't only land, of course, in the 1990s. Um, I think, for instance, the campaigns of Jesse Jackson in the 1980s is right. kind of a sign that the the Voting Rights Act of 1965 is fundamentally changing right. what American right. politics is going to look like. But that is part of this process, I think, especially with immigration. like You see the Immigration Act come up again and again in Pat Buchanan's work and Charles Murray's work and Dinesh um, D'Souza, a benefactor of the 65 right. act in his work and Peter Brimlow's work is kind of the core of it. This idea yes. that America has been irreparably changed and it's often talked about in the language of sort of, um, Oh, Balkanization or, mm-hmm. um, y- you know, these terms borrowed from Europe, but it, it very much as a response to, uh, Changes that have happened in the United States, and I, th- I think it is important not to underweight the uh, economic changes. Like the economy is just changing in profound mm-hmm. ways. Right, women are in the workforce in ways that they hadn't been before, which is why suddenly you're you're getting new conversations about sexual harassment, and those new conversations about sexual harassment, which are starting at the beginning of the 1990s, then get lumped into all kinds of conversations about fair pay, about language, about we can't behave the way we used to anymore, like that something is being taken away, something both economic and cultural. And I think that it is part of the politics of that era that sometimes explicitly seizes on the programs and the activists of the 1960s. Um, But sometimes, and I think the idea of it, like this is when these things come home to roost or, like, come to be felt in a more Mm -hmm. personal, intimate way. It happens on both sides, right? It's in the 1990s that you start to get the push, for instance, for marriage equality. Um, but Because, you know, it's been long enough now that people are allowed to be out and are allowed to kind of imagine a different kind of life um, and a different set of rights they can have access to. And then that triggers you know, a different set of of backlashes or reassertions of power.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting, Nikki. And I I wanted to ask a question, I think, that kind of pulls from that and maybe my previous question about media. Because uh, even, say, Reagan's economic changes, I was reading some of Kevin Phillips' old book, The Politics of Rich and Poor, which it was interesting Mm -hmm. he published in 1990. And already kind of some of the economic changes wrought by Reaganism we're a parent. You know, there's so many charts you can look at where something bad starts happening around 1981, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> in our kind of economic life. But but one of the maybe a sort of kind of deeper way of getting at this is something I was thinking about, especially given your background studying media and the role of media in this book. I mean, as the the term would indicate, you know, the mediating role of media, <laughs> does that become more important in a society... That is marked by the trends say, found in Bowling Alone, the book that, you know, kind of described mm. us as not being joiners in the same way, maybe becoming more isolated. And I was thinking about the kinds of media you're talking about. You know, talk radio, you're in a car driving from your suburban home on a commute to your job, right? right. You are watching cable news alone at night rather than going to the bowling league. You know, There's a way in which even the media you're pointing to sometimes might reflect kind of different ways of togetherness or lack thereof in American society. And I kind of, you know, the the politics of the 90s that you described, the anger, the extremism, groups like militias coming to the fore, what are the kind of material realities underneath that in terms of the way we live that kind of maybe drove some of that or made something like the media even more important than it might have been otherwise? Do
1: people affiliate with sort of like these media communities instead of (laughs) their communities that they live in as a result of these kind of neoliberalization trends
0: and so on and so on. Yeah, it totally points up to some of the debates about polarization, partisan sorting, all that kind of thing. And the way our political identities (laughs) loom over so many other aspects of our identities.
2: This is such a great question because, I mean, you do have some literal community manifestations of this in things like the Rush Rooms, where people (laughs) would gather Uh, at local restaurants and listen together with like-minded people to Rush Limbaugh between the hours of 9 and 12 when he was on air. And even for people who can't connect in that way, who are listening on the factory floor while they're driving or listening while in their office, this idea of like the ditto head and Crafting a community of belonging that comes from, and we'll stick with Rush Limbaugh for a second, but comes from knowing all of the code words and knowing all of the bits and the running jokes and the gags right. and knowing that when you call in, first of all, that you have the opportunity to actually speak back To the media figure. Um, So you feel that you're in conversation, even if you're not calling in, um, that you could be in conversation with this person, but that there are a community of people who are involved as well was really important. And that was so key. And this, this is why I think it's important this question about a sort of broader aspect of the culture in the 1990s. Something like MSNBC, which wasn't really set up to be a conservative channel, although it had a number of conservative pundits, the idea of it was bringing the internet and cable television together Mm -hmm. to make it more interactive so that people could have a voice on television, so they could call into Larry King Live. And I do think that that sense of affinity that is mediated through these programs and through these hosts is really important. And you see it again and again with something, you see it in media, but you also see it in, in politics, right? Buchanan's followers calling themselves the Buchanan Brigade, and drawing a sense of political identity from that support. And then somebody like Newt Gingrich plays into that by using language that is so demonizing of Democrats and liberals and using language that's so... Us and them. Yes, very stark us and them language. So I do think that there is something to that and that media, especially the intimacy of a medium like radio or the interactivity by the time you get to the later 1990s of message boards and things like that, um, comments, sections has a real power and does create real community for people who may not be able to access real community in their daily lives.
1: They're not having these arguments in their union halls. They're having them on message boards and over the radio waves.
2: Because in 1981, Ronald Reagan started the process (laughs) of doing away with those union
1: halls. Yes, yes, exactly. I wanted to ask just a final question, just because this question may naturally occur to the listeners is... George W. Bush is the end point of this process, but a kind of funny end point of it, because as you write, you know, the chapter I think is called The Last Reaganite, right? That he's really the heir of Reaganism for some people. And and it's sort of like you might have imagined the 90s ends with somebody like Pat Buchanan becoming president or something like that, (laughs) or somebody who's much more representative of these more coarse and pugnacious fighting kinds of conservatism but that isn't what happens. It's Bush. Compassionate conservatism. <laughs> That's yeah. right. So I wonder maybe if to, to close it out with that kind of ambiguous ending to this process, how do you think about George W. Bush given what you've, we've talked about so far?
2: So the 1990s gives life to this strain of conservatism that Buchanan exemplifies. But George W. Bush is so interesting precisely for the reasons that you're talking about, that this real twist of the knife where they're like, oh, he's Reagan's heir, not his father's heir. Um, And here's the guy who's coming (laughs) in, and he's optimistic and sunny-sided. He's not winning big majorities. He's not winning any majorities at all, at least in 2000. But especially after 9-11, that he's somebody who is speaking the language of, democracy and American engagement abroad. And is somebody who is, speaks compassionately about immigration and immigrants to the United States, right. um, but who also has Reagan's tax policies, has something right. like his foreign policy and his fiscal policies. And his ideas of regulation. And you see one by one, all of the dominoes fall. Oh, you're going to try Reaganism and taxes. Here's the collapse of the entire global economy. (laughs) Um, Here, you're going to try democracy and foreign policy. Here, you've just killed half a million Iraqis and Afghanis. and, And you've gotten the US mired in a disastrous war. Oh, you don't like regulation. Here's a flooded New Orleans. I'm from the government and I'm here to help are the worst words in the (laughs) English language. Well, here are people begging you on television for your help and you're flying over in Air Force One. Like every aspect of Reaganism that George W. Bush drags out onto the stage in in his two terms as president helped drive a nail in the coffin of Reaganism Hmm. because he shows the worst possible outcomes of those policies. So Even though it seems like the story is zigging once you hit 2000, I think that it it helps to explain why by 2008, the politics of the 1990s really do become ascendant in the Republican Party.
0: Yeah. I mentioned uh, earlier in the conversation that I was at Heritage in D.C. in the summer of 2004 when Reagan died and maybe more died with him than I knew at the time. (laughs)
2: <laughs> hmm.
0: yeah, I you know. mean and
2: his his legend loomed large. you know, I closed the book with that scene from the 2016 Republican yes. debates, primary debates and it they're held in the Reagan Library and they're they're under Air Force One and everyone is giving you know their big speeches about how I'm the next Reagan although not Donald Trump. He doesn't, doesn't mention that. Um, <laughs> but there is this sense that he looms large as a mythological figure, even as his grip on the party um, has faded pretty significantly.
0: Well, I think that's a good place to end it, Nikki. Just one more time for listeners, uh, your book it'll be out by the time listeners hear this, is Partisans, the conservative revolutionaries who remade American politics in the 1990s. It's an excellent book. It was a pleasure to read. And it was an even greater pleasure to talk to you, Nikki. Thank you so much.
2: I appreciate you both so much. Thank you for this conversation.
0: Thanks, Nikki. This was fun. All right, listeners. See you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you.